0: Welcome along, listeners, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of Glow West, where we chat all about the wonders of sex, sexuality and the body. I'm your host, Dr. Carolyn West, and as always, I'm delighted to be part of the Tordashek Network, where you can find tons of content on politics, culture, society, and of course, my favorite topic of sex. If you like what we do, please do consider supporting us at patreon.com forward slash tortoise Shack to help keep the mics up and running. Or if you like, please pop over to Apple and Spotify and rate and review because it helps push the podcast out to other new brand shiny new listeners. And if you want to get in touch, the Instagram and Twitter is at West Podcast. So here today we are talking about the experience of sex workers, but in a duality sense. So that's sex workers who are also everyday jobs, volunteers, they're working in supermarkets, they're working as nurses, they're working in every possible occupation that you can think of because that's the reality of sex work for a lot of people. And to talk with me today, I have an excellent expert, a very newly minted doctor. So I'm talking to Dr. Raven Bone, whose involvement in community development with sex workers spans almost three decades and two countries, which are Canada and the UK. She founded and contributed to several sex worker support projects, advocacy organisations, research projects and safety initiatives. She is also the CEO of National Ugly Mugs, which is also known as NUM, which is a UK wide victim survivor support service for adults in sex industry. And they offer free support for sex workers. So do get in touch if you need support. And she's unapologetic about the need to include sex workers as experts, as leaders and as our greatest assets in combating injustice, exploitation and violence. Dr. Raven Bowen also holds an MA in Criminology and a PhD in Sociology. And her research interests are in methodologies, research ethics, the sociology of work, critical criminology, transitioning or exiting and what she terms duality, which is concurrent involvement in sex work and square, which is mainstream, jobs. And she also has a brand spanking new book out called Work, Money and Duality, Trade and Sex as a Side Hustle. So Raven, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. How
1: are you keeping? Thank you. I' such a pleasure to be here. I'm, I'm not doing too bad, holing up, um, but just excited to talk about um, the people in this book and, and their contributions to our thinking and and all the sacrifices that they make to, to survive and to support their families.
0: Absolutely. And what you said in your introduction, they're like sex workers as experts, like they are the experts of their own experiences. And unfortunately, that's just not recognized as much as it should be throughout society. So before we dive into your book, I just could you do, give a little explainer on what National Ugly
1: Mugs Service is? Sure. Um, National Agony Mugs was founded in 2012, and it was inspired by um, some of the reporting and alerting that sex workers do informally in their communities around sharing information about violent people or people to avoid or time wasters. And so uh, Ugly Mugs, the, the name came from this group in Australia. And so uh, National Ugly Mugs decided to digitize um, the reporting and alerting process. So primarily our core service is um, sex workers are able to um, report in harms. And then where we process those, send out alerts to warn others to avoid people in situations. And then we provide um, survivor support services or victim support services to sex workers in ways that that sit within the, um, the victim's code and really high quality support that's not, you know, themselves so, them for the violence that they experience. Um, so we have a really um, cool casework team of um, independent sexual violence advisors and sex industry experts that help people decide whether um, they provide the information just to warn others, whether they provide anonymous intel to police or whether they actually pursue um, the people who harm them through um, through the courts and with uh, police assistance. And then we do a lot of other things like um, there we have online checker tools for people to check profile names and license plates and and phone numbers and emails um, against our database it has been uh, curated over the last uh, decade um, to just decide whether um, to see the next person, like it's a screening tool. Um, we do community education and uh, issue advocacy and, and a bunch of other things. But most importantly, um, we do it with people in and from sex industries, right? So they're involved at every level and uh, we have a, a, a lot to do in terms of um, advocacy efforts and, and just enhancing our services. But we, we're starting with the most talented uh, team of people that we can. And yeah, just, just trying to um, make sure that sex workers are not only served as um, survivors in the ways that they should be, but also that sex workers contribute to community safety because when sex workers are painted as the problem, right? Some people, you always see that um, they talk about sex workers and drug dealers and all in the same breath. And it's like, well, wait a minute, like sex workers are most, um invested in ending violence right like they don't want exploitation they don't want child exploitation they don't want all of these things in their industries they want control over their industries but at times um they're constructed very very differently so we have a lot to go in terms of um, combating that stigma unfortunately
0: yeah but we're getting there with people like yourself and and that's just such a fantastic service of like meeting people where they are and especially from that non-judgmental point of view because you know that's so important especially if you're in a crisis the last thing you need is to be judged for what you're doing to survive you know or you know pay the bills whatever um so so your book is all around duality so what do you mean by that you talk about square jobs which is (laughs) quite an accurate description sometimes
1: (laughs) Yeah, and I think like, you know, I I was born in the UK, but I grew up in Canada. So a lot of my language is framed uh, in that context. So Square is absolutely mainstream sort of conventional work that's non, well, not fully non sexualized, but um, that, you know, you're not overtly selling sexual services when you're selling coffee or well sometimes you are I don't know oh, yeah <laughs> but <laughs> it, depends, yeah. <laughs> like, it is quite blurry isn't it but it is uh, traditionally non-sex work um, jobs and so people who are doing both right they're they're working in mainstream industries and then they're involved in sex industries as well and they're blending those things um, in ways that suit them to achieve their their goals.
0: Okay fantastic and I, the, y- you talk about um so you interview actual sex workers in the book which is always like a good song kind of an ethical piece of research <laughs> that you're talking to the people who are actually doing the job and I thought um there's one section that where they're talking about switching off from the day job the square job mm-hmm. and then getting ready for the sex work job and the process that they they go through and so for some it's fine it's not a bother and there's one in it called Wyatt and they were saying that um, the square work is much harder to shut off because the laptop's in the lounge, in the relaxing room, so the laptop always there, the phone's going with emails, it's much harder to switch off the square work. And I think that's interesting because a lot of people are like, oh, sex work, that's the thing, that's the thing. And it's like, we don't realise how exploited we are and how hard it is to switch off from the non-sex work jobs too. It's, it's like as if yeah. sex work is the only hard job out there, like, and everything else is like, yeah.
1: fine, no problem. Yeah, and it's interesting because even people who aren't industry involved and they they go home they they have challenges shutting off their job like they're you know it it is an an experience that most people have but yet when you include sex work they always think oh that is the problem right and that's got to be the thing that preoccupies themselves but 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 it's it's not and so I think yeah it is that the way sex work is sort of seen as the un- the unusual bit so then every problem the person ever has is because of that and it's actually um, that's not the case
0: mm, you know definitely and a lot of them spoke about you know the the challenges whether they're logistical or emotional or from a safety point of view of like working at home so you know a, a lot of people might have an idea of like a sex work location as either like there's always that image of like a girl in a short skirt leaning into a yeah. car on the side of a car she doesn't usually have a head in those pictures just high heels and it's yeah. like people don't think of like sex work in the home it's like a brothel or on the side of a, the road somewhere
1: and it's like yeah how, and you think during the pandemic, right, like lots of people experience that working yeah. at home, right, and trying to separate like, you know, your kids running in the background, the dog, the cats licking the screen or whatever, you know, but that's like for sex workers who work at home. Yeah, it is that there, they, the some of the people in the book talked about um, having a separate room or a separate space. And then shutting that on and off, but you're right, like with Wyatt, he's like, but I can't shut off this this square job, I can't, but it is that, it's that physically moving between jobs, in addition to mentally and emotionally preparing for um, the different jobs and roles that we take on right so that's why I think um I framed moving between sex work and square work for some as this macro change this macro role transition and then for others it's like there's that one um, participant who who basically works her square job in her lounge in her underwear <laughs> right like completely that was on a lot by, of people right?
0: during the pandemic yeah <laughs> like, at least on <laughs> well, the bottom half anyway <laughs> yeah.
1: Lots of people got caught um, with their hands on, uh, (laughs) on camera. Um, But yeah, it is that always at the ready of, um, you know, being available for your sex work while you're working this other job and while you're trying to have a private life as well and trying to have space in your home just for you that's not, not associated with any sort of work
0: yeah 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 and you know I remember before we moved like my office was in my kitchen and I'd be there going (laughs) look at my fancy background I'm so professional and as I look over my laptop I'm like all the dirty dishes are in the corner (laughs) and like the washing's hanging up in the corner like people don't live in mansions well most of us don't live in mansions so it it is that logistics of like this is very much in your space and I suppose if it if, if it's a job that you're maybe not happy in or something is that even harder than to have to do it in your own space as well
1: yeah yeah there's that challenge too and and there's this also because some people had um clients visit so the clients were only allowed to go to certain spaces because if they go to their private spaces or their square work spaces they contaminate those spaces right so it is also it's it's managing um the clientele in your home space in ways that work for you psychically even mm-hmm. um
0: yeah. Were they worried about safety? I mean, if someone comes to your, your house, like then they're going to know where you live. And then, you know, that's you're be worried about them turning up then and just if they're
1: problem people. Yeah, I think for sex workers are are quite mixed on this. Some feel safe in their home because when they're pretty exclusive about who comes to see them, they vet them, they screen them. And sometimes it's not a new client, but a regular client that'll come. Um, And then they have control over that domain. They know where everything is. They know where what could be used as a weapon. They know an escape. Plan. they have sort of planned things out environmentally um but for some yeah absolutely no chance can a can a client know where they live because they have children they're caring for you know other adults in their families or they live in a small village or you know so with the um commuting that's involved in living a dual life and even in doing sex work at all like that's why some people tour and and they do in calls into hotels or out calls um into hotels and so it, it's basically the comfort level of the individual and that's why um, when we're thinking about safety it's so different for so many different populations there isn't a one a one thing fits all right like everybody's mm-hmm. gonna have um a different threshold and and be willing to take different risks in order to um to to earn money
0: yeah, absolutely, and, and you mentioned the um, the going on tour there. So that's when a sex worker will visit a certain area, and they'll have a whole bunch of dates and times lined up, and then someone can go see them. So it's. It's really like squishing a lot of work into you know a few days um and lots yeah. of people do that they come over from the UK and go around Ireland and you know that that kind of makes sense um but how does that work then if you have a, a square job I mean is that like all your annual leave being used up to go on
1: tour <laughs> for your sex yeah job? and weekends <laughs> weekends and stat holidays and yeah people are really they really plan that they're going to see go to this hotel or this B&B or what have you and see this range. Range of clients but then there are also individuals who are doing square jobs education and sex work so then they take their school work with them so they're doing that in the downtimes between clients and they're very very efficient and resourceful and really um, managing their time and energy in, in important ways but it is it is that like some people do the touring a couple times a year some people can do it every weekend it, it just depends on on lifestyle and and on their needs, you know. Mm, definitely.
0: And I think like some people are really simplistic about the whole sex work argument. Like it's very nuanced and like we said it, the duality of someone holding down and like these jo- these jobs are like everything, isn't it? It's like social yeah. care workers, it's lecturers, it's te- do- like everything. Like, I didn't
1: name names. I just kept yeah, it to yeah sector, it, but absolutely yeah. yes. It's public trust jobs, it's coffee shops, it's secretarial, it's working in libraries, it's, it's all it's charity work it's it's all it's everything
0: yeah and sometimes it's a survival and other times there's different reasons and it's it's complex and like the whole narrative sometimes around sex work is that it's bad or it's good. Yeah. And it's like it's so nuanced and we don't really get into those the nitty gritty arguments of it. And one of the the arguments is that, oh, sex work has to be empowering or else it's exploitative. And it's like, well, we mm. don't say that about other jobs. No. I mean, we've all had jobs where we felt like absolute crap and we have been exploited and other jobs have been super powerful. Like, why do we just insist that sex work has to fit that, that binary all the time?
1: Yeah. And assume that just mundane sex work isn't lateral to mundane other jobs like it's just yeah like you're saying like we do jobs that we hate because we need the money because we you know we have to provide for people and ourselves and you know for for people who were in this book like most weren't ab- in abject poverty which is the whole point right they held a square job to have consistent Revenue and but sometimes not so consistent in the precarious labor market and then sex industry they're blending um, all kinds of work within the industry, but some of them are just um, wanting social mobility. Right. They're wanting to have that investment to get on the property ladder and to achieve financial goals that you wouldn't otherwise be able to do if you're just doing sex work or you're just doing uh, square jobs solely because, you know, the income levels of the folks in, in this book, like, speaks for itself. Like it is they have um, they have mastered a way to benefit from really unstable markets and jobs, Um the issue with that is um, that just the drain that it takes to to manage all of those identities and information and, you know, all of that challenges of being outed and giving yourself away and and holding secrets and all that. Like it's it takes a lot to to manage duality, but um, it's clear when they're tripling the, you know, average annual income of, you know, the, it's clear why they're doing it. Um, yeah.
0: That's that's interesting on that because there's one person in your book and they said their friends wouldn't judge them if they were poly and they know they get up to all sorts of weird, and wonderful sex things. But if they told them they were a sex worker, the judgment would be instant.
1: Yeah, and that was there's diverse responses to that too because some people and then the other part is like hiding sex work from a friend group for a long time and then all of a sudden you tell them you're a sex worker and they're like. They don't believe, like really, like you were able to lie to me all this time. And then there's that weaponizing that information. But then there's that also overly exuberant about <laughs> that information, like, uh, I think one worker talked about how juicy that would be, like, you know, she couldn't share that with the people in her community, they're left, they're liberal, they're, you know, really relaxed and, and and yeah, libertarians, but to share that would, everybody would know, they wouldn't be able to hold that secret, that would be too cool of a thing to say that your friend is a sex worker, um, you know, and maybe that would just raise her public profile and a social profile in ways that would put her at risk yeah that's
0: you wouldn't think that that would be a bragging right kind of thing but um yeah apparently well the you know the the duality part like to go back to the capitalism as well there's a quote in the book that i thought was just really nail on the head and really kind of you know, just contradicts that whole it has to be empowering or exploitative. And it's from um, a client that you call Sierra or a participant that you call Sierra. And they say they're both shitty jobs. So her square job and her sex worker job. It doesn't matter whether you exploit your body or whether you exploit your smiling face. Both are exactly the same because I'm not free. They are yeah. just different types of exploitation, you know, like being on a zero hours contract. They're relying on my being smiley and pleasant and listening to shit from people, which is exactly the same like the other job in sex work. And I think that that's. True. It's it's just like you know. I think people now are having better discussions about how exploitative capitalism is, but we're still mm. not kind of there yet for understanding all that. But yeah, like zero hours, poverty, petrol crisis,
1: housing crisis, the war. Mm-hmm. Like it's like, and the performativity of these service jobs that mm. you know they they take advantage of people that they consider attractive, and they use that in order to you know for their square aims <laughs> but yet folks that you know they they don't see any difference between some of your mainstream work exploiting your look and you finding ways to benefit from your look in in sex industries they would rather have control of it than give it to a corporation to to manage and benefit from so it, it's and then, you know that whole what do they call it the big quit the big resignation. Yeah, everyone's People like just I'm not tired. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Really, I'm not doing that shit anymore. Like I'm not doing that job anymore. Yeah. Um, and I think all of it comes from this, you know, your time investment, your your energy investment is if it's not yielding for you the quality of life, the the balance, the the, helping you achieve the things that are important to you, helping you, you know, I don't know, like just spend more time with your family, more time traveling and the things you want to do, then what's the point of it? So I think there's this whole larger disillusionment of job that jobs and work in neoliberalism that, you know, Mark, neo-Marxists talk about. Right. And it is just like, all work can be shitty. Yeah, just like Sierra says. And so we have to use it to achieve our aims. But it can't be everything. It can't be all of who we are and all of everything that brings meaning for us, because you will never find meaning from work. And there are a lucky few who who do and who can. But for the most part, you're there for check. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That that's why people are like you, you know, that meme where it's like why do you want this job? And it's like I like having food and a roof over my head.
1: That's <laughs> yeah, why I yeah, want this job. That's why. But you yeah. can't say that. You yeah. have to you it's know like, perform something else. It's the oh, elephant this is in the such room. Meaningful work for me. <laughs> yeah. or like,
0: you know <laughs> definitely. And well he says well in the book that like so these people really book that trend of like we have to save sex workers and we have to get them out of this job and they have to get into a regular, respectable, quote unquote normal a job and then this that doesn't work for these people because they're doing that job already so yeah. how do people who have that narrative of like we need to save them all and get them out into decent work how do they deal with people that do both already
1: or do they right because the thing is is that there was sort of a positive of research into people who work this way or live this way even though it exists throughout history um and you know, I don't know how the rescue industry, I I guess I'll soon see how the rescue industry will respond to um, a collection of experiences like this, because I think that there are things that that they conveniently sidestep, they conveniently sidestep how capable sex workers are, how exploitative mainstream markets are, you know, people's choice, um, the sort of struct the, the political economy that we've constructed to where you know people are are full-time paid but can't make ends meet like we're so I think that they'll have a lot of challenges um with a population like this because what are they really saving them from and then the idea is too is that they are already working square jobs. Do you want to give up your job? Like, <laughs> you know, like because you know it's it's people think that we're rescuing sex workers to sweet floors and we're closing um, sexual entertainment venues to save women from exploitation, but yet they never find opportunities for those women to make income commensurate with what they would earn in sex industries but they would expect that they're going to be not that there's anything wrong with being a barista not that there's anything wrong with being a waitress but if you're making plastic surgeon money (laughs) and then you get rescued and your workplace shuts down and you're expected to sweep floors I mean like come on like why why that is not rescue that and so I I don't know how um, yeah I don't know how that industry will deal with with people who say you can't rescue me and if you want to rescue workers rescue all the trafficked workers in construction and sales and you know in agriculture like rescue McDonald's workers there's one um, quote from a, a Canadian which isn't in this book but yeah she said you know if they want to save someone go save save workers who are working in fast food joints right Mm. like save them make sure they have employment rights make sure they have um quality and and fair pay right leave me alone because i'm earning my money and i'm good
0: yeah i think that's such a huge book to that narrative of like we are the voice of the voiceless that's a huge argument in. um <clears throat> in sex work that like these are poor women that can't speak up for themselves and if they could speak up this is what they want because we know this we know this is better so I sw- like is it almost like it just they don't want to deal with them because it'll just confront the whole vision that they have of the sex worker who's unable to speak for herself or their self?
1: yeah I think it's more convenient to talk about sex workers and with them Because once you do, you'll realize how capable and savvy and resourceful and skilled and educated these folks are. And that's not to say that people, like there are people who are struggling in industries who don't want to be there, who are there because it's their only option and their only job. Some people are dealing with health issues such as addictions and, you know, may have, um, you know, just challenges um, managing life. Right. But then it's, we need to respond to those folks with resources, <laughs> with health, with uh, safe and affordable housing, with training and education, with just mental health support and really wrap arms around them and make sure that we're investing in their care and their well-being and and supporting them and ex- being exposed to all the things that could bring purpose to their life and could bring increased um, Quality and you know help them live the kinds of life they want to live but for the most part it's like you know if other jobs paid what industries paid lots of people wouldn't be in industries but that then we have to look at well why don't we pay people what they're worth? And it's like, well, because people get rich off of underpaying workers and overpricing products and services, right? So that's the unethical um, structure of capitalism. And so capitalism really needs people who are desperate, who are overskilled, who will, or underskilled, and who will do any job in order to make someone else rich. And there are folks in this book that are like, screw you, I'm not doing that. I'm going to take whatever control over my life and finances I can take. I'm going to do it. And if that means I'm doing sex work for six months to get together some money, or if that means I'm doing square work or whatever it is, or a combination, they're going to do it. And so they're not buying into the lie anymore.
0: Do you think some people's opposition to sex work then is, I don't say jealousy because that's it's too reductionist, but like resentment that they are stuck in that system because like you've just covered a lot there and and like you know and explain how capitalism is just really terrible sometimes but like a lot of us are really resentful that we are stuck in crappy jobs and you know we're we're struggling and then to see someone refuse to comply maybe they have a lot of complicated feelings that get projected onto that person Mm. who refuses to comply
1: hmm maybe but i don't want to romanticize sex work either right yeah like so it is you know but yeah maybe i don't know what what that because it's usually this moralistic kind of stance around sex work and sex work stigma about you know how you shouldn't be selling your body quote unquote and but yet we allow corporations to do it so and movies and whatever entertainment all that all those other industries uh, to sell people's bodies so you know it it i think there might be a resentment around people who are trying to just take control of it and take control if i if i want to subjugate myself <laughs> that should be my choice right like it it's, it's supposed to be my body my choice but when it comes to sex work for some reason um we have a huge contingent of folks i don't know if it's faith based i don't know what that is but um that decide that selling sexual service services is not something we want in our society and so it's like well that's their crusade there might be a jealousy there might be a they don't like that these folks have innovated and found a way out I don't don't know you know
0: yeah it's well it's definitely something kind of worth exploring maybe in further detail and stuff but that um You know, the violence that that sex workers often face and the only conversation at the time is about, you know, bad clients and, you know, the violence. And obviously this is that's a conversation that has to happen as well. But the violence that, you know, they face on that kind of day to day basis from from friends from family, from organizations wanting to rescue them from stigma as well is really important. Because like you were saying, that's having to hide yourself all the time is very, very draining. But that stigma You know, you cover that in the book and I did this in my my research as well. And all my participants in, you know, American female porn actresses, they're just like, oh, the stigma is awful. We get it from society. We get it from potential dating partners, from family, from friends, from um, employers. And it's just like it just seems like it's a really overwhelming thing to have to deal with as well as everything else.
1: Yeah. And just and the people in this book had to hide their sex work from other sex workers, right? Like it, it, you're, you're managing and segregating these audiences and trying to, um, especially people who worked online because they're not, they're only, they only appear as sex workers online, you know what I mean? Like that's the only place where they manifest in their other jobs and everywhere else if all things are the way they construct it, nobody would know, like those worlds don't collide, but yet, you know, they, they are holding those secrets because being outed it's beyond social death. It's, you know, it's, people take their lives after being outed and dealing with the repercussions for that. People are so incredibly judgmental. incredibly judgmental against sex workers in particular. And I try to explain to people that, you know, when they talk about marginalized populations and we've got, you know, migrants and refugees and people of color and people of sexual and gender minorities, and all of these, these individuals that experience stigma, there's something unique. I was going to say special, but something unique about sex work stigma that it's, it's, And I think it's grounded in this sort of moralism and um, this idea that, you know, sex is not for sale yet. It is for sale when you're, you know, selling your daughter to the next king in the next, you know, valley or whatever, like, you know, so within the institution of marriage, it's okay. And giving sex away for free is okay, but God forbid you commodify. Right. And I, I just think it's easier for folks to, paint this population as uneducated and, you know, um, impoverished and just, uh, victimized. And so that we don't have to include them in ways meaningful and we, we can just pathologize and, you know, just designate them as vectors of disease and, and yeah, people who are a threat to all that is holy. I think in, instead of recognizing yeah. that they're workers and they're workers like any other worker, and yeah. you know,
0: I think in that as well is is that dehumanization as well of like like this the stuff that you've listed in your book about people you know they're outed by national newspapers, they're edited mm-hmm. by ex-partners, and all they're outed to family, and it's horrendous. And the women I spoke to as well, like one of them had her porn DVDs mailed to her family, and it's yeah. just like it just seems like tough. You deserve it. You're a bad person yeah. anyway. So I don't really care. And like, if we said that to anyone else, like if it was a non sex work experience where someone did something as horrific, like we'd have a lot more empathy. I I mean, imagine yeah. like that could result in like family estrangement, like,
1: yeah. you know, child violence. apprehension, <laughs> you know, overdose, suicide. It is this like need to, shame and humiliate sex workers right and it's like where does that venom come from like where and but yet when it comes to responding to sex workers needs in the ways they ask for right responding to the harm in the ways that they define it oh no you know (laughs) so it just it just feels like that that's the part that yeah I just I it, it baffles me um, about how we can dehumanize and, and sort of marginalize a population of people who actually we probably go to the parent-teacher meeting with or, you know, they served us at the grocery store or we work with them in other jobs, right? Like the point I was trying to make here, it's like as soon as information about their sex working active or former is, is known... All of a sudden, they're available to be slaughtered, right? And it's it's just there. There needs to be an accountability and a kind of truth and reconciliation around that. Why is it? In, in yesteryear, we used to physically torture sex workers, right? You go to the dungeon. They show the little apparatus that they would use to torture sex workers. We would shame them. We would we would out them for out them from the communities. We would you know they just really do some really inhumane things to them. But yet, in some communities, sex workers and in some living arrangements, sex workers are the only people who are earning money. And, you know, sex workers are the sole breadwinner in so many different um, situations. And, you know, we don't recognize their contribution to the economy and contribution to to helping others survive. Yeah, I- And it's not new either. No,
0: definitely not. It's just the format changes sometimes. I mean, like, look at, like, OnlyFans at the moment has just totally changed so much about sex work. And do you remember that um, the woman, I think it was, like, New York or something, and she was an ambulance driver or something in in that kind of field. And she was outed as having an OnlyFans as well. And people were like, that's disgusting. She should be fired straight away. And I think it was the... um, some politician had said oh, maybe we need to ask why she needs to be an ambulance driver and have an only fans as well like is one <laughs> <You> job <think? laughs> she's not surviving on one job like yeah. that's a conversation we're not having in the midst yeah. of shaming this person who's just yeah getting on with their day like
1: <laughs> and think about it she probably works term right term employment probably Yeah, not a living wage or a family wage either. Like if you think about, I even highlighted a police officer that was caught, you know, um, selling sex with his partner and it's like and he he was on statutory sick but it's like do you know how much statutory sick is right like so we don't look at the structure we look at here's the person here's the population let's vilify them right instead of looking at the context and looking at the reasons it's it's logical what people are doing right it's rational what they're doing um, and so if we want to change conditions and we make sure nobody lives below the poverty line we make sure everybody is safe and affordable housing right we make sure that when someone experiences trauma that they actually get the mental health support they need like we will will increase support to families during crises instead of plucking the meat off their bones right um but it's like we choose not to do that in in a lot of ways and and that's the hypocrisy
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, hypocrisy all the time, like those politicians smiling as they open a food bank <laughs> and things like that. It's just oh, yeah. boil your blood, boil your bones. But I think. Like, do you think things like OnlyFans, like some of the sex workers you spoke to, obviously they're doing in-person sex work, so they're either having someone come some, to their yeah. home or they're they're going out to locations. But things like OnlyFans, you know, you, you run a higher risk maybe, or do you perhaps, of like being outed because someone can say, hey, that's so-and-so on that, um, on that video or image or whatever it is and forward it on to someone, whereas if you're going on tour or some, you have to kind of almost be unlucky that you might bump into somebody um you know from their community or something. So do you think that's changing the risk element for people?
1: Yeah, because I think the people so there were people obviously the informal sex industry is probably the safest depending on how you are able to access clients because some people are it's mediated by um the internet or by um, social media platforms but that's the informal sort of ducking out to go see someone that's probably the safest most discreet way to do industry work but um the web cameras in in the study too like they're they have their materials created for specific audiences and depending on the platform depending on whether you know things can be captured on screen or not but they do run the risk um and you know I think part of we did this image-based violence uh this visual violence project um at Nam, and this whole research project and it is about like sex workers have no protection when it comes to managing their images and people there's also theft of images that are used you know and other people are making money off of that on um so there there are a lot of issues and a lot of um I guess, policy changes that are needed to protect sex workers who produce content for a designated audience that then gets, you know, stolen or used to extort them or or sold elsewhere with them not uh, benefiting or consenting to that. Because some of the legislation like revenge porn, like that doesn't even, their private images, right? So that doesn't protect sex workers at all. And we're like, well, there was a reason why why um, sex workers were excluded from that. And so, you know, we need some, we need increased support, not only for um, managing the images, but also sex workers having ability to negotiate the terms and conditions with platforms. And, you know, because, you know, it, it is like you you essentially lose control of your content. So OnlyFans is an opportunity for people to create the content, sell the content and have more control over it. But it truly is all risk but it's just a matter of degree because there's um there is a person in in uh participant in in the book who does her square job near her sex work job <laughs> and so the likelihood of her running into clients is quite high um but then there are others who um yeah do more discreet commuting and and just manage orchestrated things where um, they they don't look anything like what they look on screen in person or they are working in such a square job where that is the last thing you'd ever think unless, yeah, that was, a. that's the last thing you would ever think that that was them on the webcam. And then sometimes sex workers are like, well, but you were flipping watching my, you know, you exactly. were watching me. Yeah. But that never, that no. never saves anyone, right? No. But you think it would, like, how do you know I have a porn, like, how do you know I have a hub account, right? Like, how do you know that? It's like, well, so the consumer um, or the person with the gaze all seems to escape scot Free a lot of times.
0: Yeah, that you're back to that hypocrisy again. What is it? Yeah. We masturbate with the right hand and point in judgment with the left, or some <laughs> version of of that. Um, yeah, it, it's complex, but I think you know I'm really glad your book is out there for people to engage with it. And it's like it's fab. It's obviously backed up by tons of research, and it's actually centering sex workers' experience, which again is just should be super basic, should be step number one. <laughs> but it's not done by everyone, so I'm so glad you've done it and. I know we could talk for ages, but, um, you know, I'd, I'd prefer people go buy your book instead. That's a that's a Yay. great resource for it. So remind us of the title again.
1: Sure. It's Work, Money and Duality, Trading Sex as a Side Hustle. Um, and I do want to, I should say the publisher is Policy Press, Bristol University Press. And I'm working on an audio book that will be out shortly.
0: Perfect. Perfect. But well, that's great. Yeah. Different ways to listen as well, especially if you don't want to or you can't have the the book, physical book in person. So that's fab. Um, Raven, it's been fantastic. Where can people find you and follow along with the work that you're doing?
1: Oh, sure. Um, I'm, yeah, I guess really findable at National Ugly Mugs. I'm the CEO of the organization. So we have um, Twitter account at National Ugly Mugs and uh, we're on Instagram and facebook as well so do um visit national and just see the wonderful work we're doing and if you're so inclined um donate to support us in hiring sex workers as part of our service delivery team and also um to support us in ending violence fantastic
0: excellent causes to, to support uh, like we don't need, we shouldn't be able to say that, but yeah, no, you know, we do. But um, listen, thank you so, so much. And yeah, absolutely encourage all my listeners to grab a copy of the book. It's just fascinating. Just, you know, the different experiences that are documented in it as well. So, and infuriating and everything else, <laughs> every other emotion going. So it's fab to have it out there. So yeah. So thank you for coming along today.
1: My pleasure. Thank you
0: you and thanks to all listeners as usual um, do please grab a copy of the book it is fantastic and I'll chat to you next time